This is the third installment in our Advent series here. Um, first things first, looking at the first chapters of the books of John and Colossians and Hebrews and Revelation, looking at those first chapters and how with each one, the ways in which Jesus reveals himself to us and, and who he is and, and all of his wonder and glory. And this morning we're actually in, in Hebrews chapter 1. And I should tell you that uh, the first audience, and this comes, this is very important to recognize this from the start, this first audience that was receiving that, that letter was under great duress, was facing great pressure. A Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, I'm, you know, we're pretty much all, nearly all of us are familiar with that, and, and some of you may even be familiar with some of the, the backstory as to where that came from and how it was uh, produced back so many years ago. Charles Schultz was under a lot of pressure from the network, CBS at, at, at the time. Uh, the, the network suits, they uh, did not like the idea of children playing the parts of the children. Uh, in fact, Schultz insisted on, on that. In fact, he insisted on it so much that my understanding is from something I came across this week that um, not only did the director recruit from his neighborhood some of the, the neighborhood children to read some of the parts, but some of those children who read some of those parts and are in the special couldn't read. They're so young that people there in the recording studio are having to tell them the lines and then they're repeating them into the microphone. Uh, that's some of what was going on on there. Uh, CBS, the network, they were insisting on a laugh track to be included there in the special. And Schultz said, no way, we are not going to do that. And in addition to this, uh, the network suits, uh, CBS, they wanted to cut the reading from Luke's gospel that Linus does there towards the end because they were afraid that the advertisers would get really, really nervous. And Schultz said, you pull that and the whole thing's done. Let's be glad he did. Now, the dress that he was facing is nothing like what we're talking about here with Hebrews. That's just a lead-in uh, to, to that. Uh, the, the church, the first audience here that was receiving this letter, uh, as we're reading here, and that we call the Book of Hebrews, again, was under great pressure, under great duress, and we know the historical record. The fact is they, they, did, they, they withstood that. They lived through that. In fact, you could even say they prospered through that. How did they do that? That's the question. What was it that sustained them under that duress and, and pressure in those times? Well, that's what we're going to look at here together for a few minutes. So if you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Hebrews. If you're trying to find that, uh, it's after a whole bunch of T's uh, there in the New Testament. It's after First and Second Thessalonians. It's after First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then Philemon. There's a P in there. And then comes the big book of, of Hebrews, and James comes after that. So if you've hit James, read it another time. We're, we're in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, we're just looking at verses 1 through 4, this opening salvo uh, here in this uh, wonderful, amazing book. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Would you pray with me? We need this. Ah, Lord, um, we are more needy than we know. Every one of us here in this room is more needy than we know. It goes deeper, as bad as it may feel right now this morning. It's worse. But you're better. You're better. As great as we may think you are here this morning, we can't take it in. How majestic and powerful and wise and compassionate and merciful and just good you are. Oh, we ask that you would help us to see both. Our deep, deep need that goes far, so much worse, so much greater than we know. But then our Savior, he is so much better, so much greater. We ask that you'd give us a glimpse of that here this morning and sing us, send us, send us out of here truly singing. In your name we pray. Amen. And for a lot of us, uh, part of just the holiday season just really wouldn't seem right. It seemed like December had just, you know, there's just something missing. If you don't get a chance to sit down with, if nothing else, just yourself and not, you know, some loved ones, to watch the 1946 film classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra's, uh, one of his best known feature films, starring, of course, Jimmy Stewart. It's a fantastic film. Uh, a lot of great scenes, a lot of great moments. One in particular, uh, about midway, where Mr. Potter, the old ogre there, the Grinch, I guess, the embodiment of the Grinch living there in Bedford Falls. Mr. Potter is trying to lure uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, into coming to work for him and lure him to, to entice him with great pay and all kinds of wonderful privilege. And for a moment there, you can see it. For a moment there, poor George is, is being pulled by this. He's being lured by this. He is tempted by this until he comes to his senses. And he says this line to Mr. Potter. You sit around here and spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. And the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you are nothing but a scurvy little spider. George had a close call there. Really close. The pressure was such that he nearly gave up and he nearly turned back. Again, the context of this letter. Here's what we know. Most likely, this is written to a group of Jewish converts to Christianity in the mid-first century. Uh, likely, because of some things we can pick up on here, especially towards the end of the letter, they, they're in Rome. And when you put all that together in terms of the time period and the place, they're living under the reign of Nero, not a nice man. Which meant then, when you put all that together, these Jewish Christians are living with a bullseye on their back, hunted by the Roman authorities and hated by their Jewish neighbors. It's a tough time. And so that's the, that being the context of the letter, the purpose of this letter, it comes out very clearly as you begin to read through it. The purpose therein is to, to, to encourage these readers to be faithful. Faithful. To stay the course. To hold on 
and to hold on to Christ. And towards that end, the theme of this letter, and again, this comes out over and over again throughout the, the book of Hebrews, is Christ is greater. Christ is greater than whatever you may be tempted to turn back towards or to give in to. Christ is greater. He's greater than the angels. You see that here at just the very end of what I read, and it unfolds from there in the rest of chapter 1. He's, there, he's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than anything that you could be tempted to turn back towards. Christ is greater. He is better. He is higher. He is more. Christ is greater. How do we see that? How do we see his greatness here in this short text? I, I would make the case uh, to you that just as uh, those first readers need to hear this, that Christ is greater, and so then, because of that, they must then hold on to him, we need to hear that too. We need to hear that too, lest we turn back and give up and give in. Now, how do we see that greatness reflected here? We see it under, I'll just say, the, the, the three great offices that you see in the Old Testament. That is, the, the prophet, the king, and the priest. Christ is the greater prophet. Christ is the greater king. Christ is the greater priest. He is all of those offices were meant to be and more pointing towards him. That's what they were all about, ultimately, in the flow of human history. Let's look at this together. Christ is greater first. He's, he is the greater prophet. Verses 1 and 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And skipping down to verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ is the greater prophet for he perfectly reveals God to us. And the author of Hebrews begins by making, in making that case by setting before us these striking contrasts. Yes, in the sense of, of timing, absolutely. There, in so many ways and in so many uh, times, God revealed himself to his people back in, in those days. And in wonderful, wonderful ways, but how much more so, that's what he says, how much more so now in these last days, in this last period of redemptive history and the unfolding of God's plans and purposes, he has revealed himself personally to us now. In terms of timing, the contrast, in terms of the recipients, yes, it's absolutely true that he did reveal himself in some fantastic, amazing ways in days gone by to the greats, to the giants of the faith, our fathers, our predecessors, the patriarchs, and all the rest. But here in these days, we have a greater revelation, and it's come to us. God has revealed himself to, not just as something that was passed down to us, but he's revealed himself to us. And then one more contrast, the agents through whom he has revealed himself. Yes, absolutely, and it's an amazing thing, it's a fantastic thing, it's a wonderful thing that he revealed himself so, so clearly through the prophets, those great, the giants of the faith from years gone by. Yes, men like Moses and Elijah and, and Isaiah and so many others. But now he has chosen to reveal himself not just through chosen servants, but through his beloved son. And you see, he's ramping it up. As great as that was, it is greater yet still. I mean, after all, how does he describe this one who has come, the Son? So he shifts them from these striking contrasts to these stunning images. 
How does he describe Christ as the radiance of the glory of God? Verse 3. The radiance of the glory of God. If you, if you have read anything of the Old Testament, you, you remember when God's glory appears to his people, it is the visible expression of his majestic presence. Oftentimes expressed in terms of light, blinding light. You think just in, like, like of Sinai, right? And the giving of the law and, and the, the, the thunder and the lightning and the shaking. That was because the glory of God was present there. His, this, the, his, somehow like an echo of his presence was there. Or when the glory of God came and indwelled the Holy of Holies there in the temple. Miraculous events. Powerful events. True events in time and space and history. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus, with all that in mind, of what the glory of God is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God somehow in flesh. And with that, as though that wasn't enough, he is described as the exact imprint of his nature. Um, something like this coin that I have here. So Susan B. Anthony here. Um, grab that because it's just a hair bigger than a quarter. Not that you can see it any better. But you know, here on the face, it's got an imprint of a person's face. And that's exactly what is the, the very image that's being used here in, in this passage. The exact imprint of his nature. The idea being that if, if you think in terms of how coins are minted, they're intended to be an ex, a, a precise representation of the face, of the, of the visage of the individual whose image is there on the coin. The idea being that Jesus is not just similar to God. He's exactly like God. Indeed, he is God. If we can possibly get our minds around this. So Jesus as the greater prophet perfectly reveals God. Unlike our Christmas celebrations. I'm not picking on celebrations. The Christmas, I love the I mean, you know, if I'm careful, by the way, this has a sound chip in it. I've got to be very careful not to bump up against the, the pulpit here, so I'm backing off a little bit. But um, I think it just in terms of the colors, right? The colors of the season and the, the symbolic intent as to what they are to convey, the red and the green and the white and the gold and the silver and all of that. But you know how easily that can just be lost. And that, that message of the intentionality and the purpose of those colors is completely lost in so many people around us who are celebrating the season. Or you think in terms of our, our gift exchanges. And of course, it's a time for gift giving. But all that can easily be lost in the chaos, the, the carnage of the gift wrapping, the heart of it. What is it about? It's meant to point back to the Magi and Jesus himself as the ultimate gift. But that gets lost underneath our, our selfishness and our greed. Or you think in terms of the carols that we sing, some of which are already this morning, yet some yet to be sung, and over the course of the, the coming weeks, and there such beautiful lyrics, I mean, just fantastic theology being expressed there poetically in those songs. And you know what happens? It becomes background noise that we just don't hear. See, Jesus, in his perfect revelation, of who God is, he doesn't get lost. 
He doesn't, there's nothing fuzzy about his communication of who God is truly, truly, as the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature. And oh, how we need him. Oh, how this world needs him as the greater prophet. Without Christ, we are in the deepest of darkness. We have no ultimate answers. We have no idea as to purpose or direction or meaning or significance or hope that will last and endure. There's none of that without him. But with, with, with him, oh my goodness, with him, we have truth. Truth that you can build on. Truth that you can stand on. Not just a truth. That's not. Please don't mishear me. Not just a good idea, not just a sound opinion. I'm saying truth. As the late, great apologist Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth. Trying to stress the point. Jesus, you see, again, my friends, he is the greater prophet. Oh, how we need to hold on to him. There's more yet. He is the greater king. And we see that also in this passage as, as well. Uh, picking up where I left off in verse 2, um, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, that is the Father, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then uh, skipping down to the end of verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus reigns. Jesus rules. We see this in his royal person. He is described here as the appointed heir. This is harkening back to something we talked about last week in Colossians 1, where that, that rule, that ancient custom of primogenitor, where the firstborn son was given the lion's share of the inheritance. And the reason for the, the, yeah, the reason for that great privilege was a responsibility that that firstborn son would take that larger inheritance and use it to then care for and provide for the rest of the family. Worth noting here. He is the appointed heir. He is the appointed heir of what? How far does this inheritance go? What is it? Of all things. It's not just a healthy inheritance. It's not just a lot. It's total. It's, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's the universe. And everything in it is due to him. Which then takes us from his person, his royal person and who he is, but his royal power and what he does. Because not only are we told that all things are for him, and this, comes, this is a, something of a repeated theme that we saw last week, but it comes up again here in Hebrews. It's not just that all things are for him and due to him, but all things ultimately come through him. He is not just the inheritor of all the universe and all creation. He is the agent through whom it came. He summoned everything into being. By the word of his power, the farthest star was lit. And the smallest sparrow was made. Such is, is, 
His royal power, and, and the, the author goes beyond that because not only does, is he the agent of the creation, he is the sustainer of creation as well. He spoke, like we see in Genesis. He spoke, and it was. And Hebrews is telling us he speaks, present tense, and it continues to be. He upholds all things. He sustains all things. He keeps all things. He maintains all things. Jesus reigns. Jesus rules. Jesus is the king, the greater king, even if it doesn't look like that. Because let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't. You think just back to Luke's narrative of uh, the nativity and Jesus' birth. You want to keep your thumb here in Hebrews 1 and go with me to Luke chapter 2. That's the third of the Gospels, third book of the New Testament. Luke 2, verses 18 and 19. This is uh, in the context of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels and the flow of all of that. And the angels have sung over the hills of Bethlehem. The shepherds have now heard that and they've come now seeking out this child. Uh, they've relayed the message, and we pick up here in verse 18, Luke 2, 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Well, of course she did. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, think of what this woman has been told. The angel Gabriel has spoken to her a few months ago. Soon after that, her older uh, relative Elizabeth tells her yet more. Joseph surely told her what the vision was he had, as recorded for us in Matthew, that was read earlier. And now these shepherds come, relaying this news of what the angels have told them over the skies of Bethlehem. So of course she is wondering and treasuring as she's holding the subject of all those proclamations in her arms. This one conceived in scandal. Born into poverty. Laid in an animal feed trough. He's the king. You see, it doesn't always look like that, does it? It never has. But that doesn't make it untrue. The fact we can't see it and how it's playing out, and his rule and his reign. And, and, I, and I say that because this is where we get tripped up. We have our list of demands of the king, and we have our insisted timetable that we put before the king. Kings don't do that. That's not the way kings operate with a list of demands and timetables from the subjects. It doesn't work like that in the royal throne room. And so what happens is we then get frustrated with that because the king deems to give us things we don't want or to not give us the things that we do want according to the ways in which we want them. And enough time goes by where you're steeping in that. And you begin to wonder, 
Is he a king at all? Or is there even a king at all? And that's why passages like Hebrews 1 are so good to come back to again and again and again. These reminders. Who is he? Who is he? He is the king. He is the greater king. My friends, he can be trusted with all of his royal person and power in mind. He can be trusted. And oh, how we need to hold on to him. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater king. There's one more thing. He's the greater priest. We see this in the last part of verse 3. And on into verse 4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What's going on here? What is, what is the author getting at here? He's speaking, obviously, to Jesus' sacrificial work. Um, that is, is rooted in, in rich, long history. You need to, let's turn back the clock now, just from that point, okay? Turn back the clock 1,500 years. Going all the way back, I'm just going to go stop going all the way back to the Passover, the first Passover. To say nothing of sacrifice made before that. I'm talking when it was instituted. So that first Passover, and then all the ceremonial sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple after that, for hundreds of years, generation upon generation, having their, their, their consciousness soaked through with the idea of the need, with those bloody sacrifices of the need for a covering, of a washing, for forgiveness of sin. And that, 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 those ceremonial rites pointing to the ugliness and the graphicness of all of that, pointing to the ugliness and heinous, heinousness of sin, and what it deserves, and the reality of cosmic justice, and the necessity of one to come and make all that right. And in Jesus, that time fully came. And I'll read you again these words that the angel communicated to Joseph there in that vision, as we find there in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. These are the words of the angel to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. How? Through this sacrificial work, through his being the fulfillment of all those bloody sacrifices over the course of those centuries. His, his, his priestly work, his work, on the one hand, representing us before God, yes. But also being the priestly sacrifice himself. Or as John the Baptist says, we have recorded for us in John chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's... Jesus. That's Jesus. That's exactly what he has come to do in the sacrificial work. But my friends, it goes even beyond that. As great and wonderful as, and needed as that is for us to hear, it is not just a sacrificial work, it is a completed work. I don't know if you caught this as, a, as we read this a moment ago. 
But, but it's, it's so clear here in, in verses 3 and 4. You see, in the, the Old Testament priesthood, there in the temple, there were no chairs. There was nowhere to sit and rest and take a break. You see, for the Old Testament priests, and their labors within the temple precincts, their work was never done. It was day after day after day, all through the year, and with certain special seasons, and then every year, and, and, and going on for years after, you know, continually, constantly. Not so with Jesus. Once. And then once the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, once that is done, what happens? What do you see here? After making purification for sins, he sat down. Why? Because even as he said with his dying breath, hanging there from the cross, it is finished. It's done. That sacrificial work has been completed. Jesus is, you see, the greater priest in offering up himself to make us right with God. And that's done. It's finished. The longing, the deepest longing of your heart, he has taken care of. Now you're thinking just in terms of our carols. And and this one I'm talking about secular carols. Not the ones that we would necessarily sing in here, but there's nothing really wrong with them, it's just they really wouldn't fit. Like, the, the longings that even those songs that we hear this time of year express. A, a homesickness, a longing for family, a longing for friends, a longing for nostalgia. I'll be home for Christmas. What does that point you towards? It's something, a, a deep, heartfelt longing. It's pointing towards something. Even beyond that, Bing Crosby, White Christmas is pointing towards, I mean, that we, there's something at a gut level that we just instinctively, how we instinctively respond to snow. And I don't mean like, oh my gosh, i got to shovel it. I mean, but the, the beauty of it, in its whiteness and its purity, I will make the case to you this morning, that's deeper than you know, that instinctive response. It's something hardwired with the human soul. And if you trace the theme through the scriptures, this is not so crazy. Snow, snowfall in the Bible, every time it comes up, it, in its context, is referring to purity, to cleansing. Not just whiteness you know, externally, but internally, spiritually. Forgiveness. Purification. It's not a bad song. And it's speaking to something quite powerful. We need this prophet. We need this king. We need this priest. We need this prophet to reveal God to us. We need this king to rule and govern us. We need this priest to make atonement to, to, to die for us. And my friends, there is such comfort to be found here. When you just look at this text and just take it in, breathe it in deeply, there are no qualifications made here by the author. Did you notice that? He says, after making purifications for sins, not, well, most of them, except yours, or except that. It's just open. Wide open. Which means, 
I've got to tell you this. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. None of us are too far gone. There's nothing that's too much, that's too nasty for him to clean. And then pushing a little further. With comfort, I want to give you a reminder. I'm speaking here to you. If you're a Christian this morning, you, need to, you also need to hear this. This reminder. That he sat down. He sat down. It's done. So you've done it again. You've fallen into it again. You, you, you got fooled. You fell. You failed again. This week. Okay. Are you going to keep beating yourself up? Are you going to keep going through your rituals? As though you could punish yourself and you could do self-purification. Is that how it's done? Who sat down? Is it finished or not? Plead the blood of Jesus and move on. And know that he's made you clean. He is the greater priest. Oh, the greater priest. How we need to hold on to him. We'll end with this last thought. These people, this first audience, as are we, are being called on to hold on, to hold fast to Christ, to hold on to the gospel. How do we do that? Is that going to be just by sheer determination and willpower and grit? No. We hold on by holding on to the one who is holding on to us. Did you catch that? We hold on by holding on to the one who is already holding on to us. The dynamics, it's what I'm talking about, the, the lofty theological term here is sanctification. Jesus is making us more like himself. Slowly but surely. Taking the gospel message and pressing it into our hearts and doing this work of transformation from the inside out. Uh, his, uh, if I can put it this way, in terms of a contrast, his living and dying for us, justification, making us right with God, that was once for all, that's monergistic. One party is involved, he does it, does it all. It's done in full, complete. But sanctification, our growing to be more like him, are continually living for him, learning to live for him and dying to self. That's daily, that's continually, that is synergistic. It's two parties, he and us. His saving us is monergistic. He gets all the credit, he does all the work. Synergistic, our growing to become more like him, is his working in us as we are working. We follow him because he's got his hand upon us. We work out our salvation because he is working in us. I know there's tension. I know it's a paradox. But that's the scriptural teaching there. Now, get away from the dynamics and all the technical stuff there with sanctification. Let me give you some assurance and close us out with that. The assurance of your sanctification. My friends, honestly, the true Christian does not need to worry if he or she is going to fall away and lose their faith. Sheep... We are sheep. By definition, do stray. It's why we have a shepherd. 
to guide us, provide for us, protect us, and to bring us back. And he will. He will. If I can mix the metaphors a little bit. He never plants a tree that doesn't flourish, at least in time. Um, some of you may be familiar with, the, and I don't know how much we do this here in Tennessee. I know back in Virginia years ago, the root ball Christmas tree idea. You know, instead of cutting the tree down, you dig it up, and then you, you bring it into the house, and you put it into an oversized bucket of water for the, for the season. And then the idea is you keep it watered over the course of, of those weeks, and then in come January, you dig a hole, and you plant the thing, and it's, you know, then you have a tree, ostensibly. I can, we, our family did this a few times, at least once I can think of, um, when I was growing up. And what I remember was, I remember two things. The pain of having to water it. And then a few months later, this ugly, scraggly, crunchy, dead tree out in our yard. God's plantings don't work like that. What he plants, he will bring to flourishing. What he starts, he will finish. What he begins, he will complete. Know that of yourself. Know that of yourself at 3 a.m. especially when you wake up and you wonder. Know that of yourself. We have but to hold on to the one who is already holding on to us. We have but to hold on to the one who is already holding on to us. And his grip will not let you go. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater king and the greater priest. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, that you would shape our Advent celebration according to these realities. You are the great prophet come to reveal God to us. You are the great king come to begin your rule in us. You are the great priest come to reconcile us to heaven. We have great need. We have a greater Savior. We ask that you help us to absorb all that and the implications that flow rightly through that. May they be flowing through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.